Welcome to the Bike Rumor Podcast, where we spin off from our usual tech coverage to pick the brains of the people behind the brands. If you want to hear how bikes and components go from ideas to the things we ride, this is the cycling podcast you've been waiting for. Please welcome your hosts, Tyler and Watts. Today's guest is Tori Fay, who co-founded with her husband, Apadura, the frame bags. And in my mind, some of the best looking frame bags out there. Super high quality aesthetic to them, you know, very clean look. And it was really interesting talking to her about how they did it. And what I was surprised by is how young of a company they are. They really only got started in 2013. And for me, it just seems like they've been around forever. In but, my head, been yeah. around longer. But it was, it's cool, and I don't want to spoil anything, but it, their little icon, it's like a little Bumblebee logo, sort of. It's pretty cool where that came from, so I'm going to let her tell that story when we get into that. But yeah, bikepacking is not blowing up in the sense that gravel is, but I think as more people like to head off-road and explore longer and longer, you know, they're adding like a bento box or maybe a handlebar bag or something. Like, what are you seeing at the shop? What are people throwing on their bikes? We do a lot of saddlebags. And a lot of frame bags. And a lot of handlebar bags. Right. Well, saddlebags, everybody's been doing that. But are they getting bigger? I mean, the big saddlebags like, oh, okay. uh, for bikepacking. Not just a little inertia designs saddlebag for your uh, tube. Yeah. Big stuff. And we have all of the bikes in the shop outfitted with... Not all of them. A lot of the bikes outfitted with bags just to show people what's possible. Yeah, and it looks cool. Like the yeah, salsas that you got display. hanging there look awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I think having it on display helps for sure. You know, people see it and then it, it sparks that idea. And it does, like I said, it looks so badass that I think there's probably some people out there. And I'm not going to say I would never do this. But, you know, you put one of those kinds of bags on just because it looks really good. <laughs> oh, and then my problem is I've... I'm like, well, I have all this space. I should bring more stuff with me. And I think also people see it. It gets the wheels turning of what they could do. Yeah. And as consumers, we start going, buying according to what we might do one day, maybe. Darn tootin'. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I'm guilty of that. Yeah. We just hoard gear and it's cool. Yeah. Regarding the bags and stuff. I mean, it's funny to see that not, not come full circle, but we're putting handlebar bags on bikes for just everyday use while that very much went away in i don't know late 90s maybe hmm. and then the people that were still doing it were like the retro grouches that people were laughing at and now that's coming back <laughs> people are wearing fanny packs i know <laughs> all the time fanny packs and those same people were probably bashing them as i was Yes, you so, haven't gone to a fanny pack yet. No, I, I haven't found you. a fanny pack that uh, doesn't wiggle around on me. Yeah. Or doesn't get my gut. I struggle with that. So what I've found is if you only put a couple of things in it or like just minimal stuff, they're fine. But for me, like when I ride, I carry a lot of stuff. And I, we'll talk about that uh, after the interview because it's a whole nother conversation. But when you load it with water, whether it's a couple of bottles or, you know, just one big bottle. And then like for me, it's. A tool pouch that's got everything under the sun and probably my phone, probably my wallet, and maybe a camera and some snacks. Like when you get that much weight in there, yeah, it bounces around and becomes uncomfortable. And it's really tough for me to get it to sit where I want it to sit and then not like 
you know, you do a little bunny hop and it's like whoop and then like slams you in the butt. Yeah. And it just it's not Tell right. you what I would love to test if y'all have a fanny pack that you think works really well, I'll test it. Alright. So in this in the episode post for this uh, episode, that was horrible. For the <laughs> for the show notes on this episode, leave a comment if you found a fanny pack that works really, really awesome for you. We definitely have some in, you know, like Honestly, the Osprey and Camelback ones that we have in right now are pretty awesome. You know, tons of storage. But the thing is, when you overload them, they get heavy. And that's, and that's when it becomes an issue for me. But yeah, so if you got a favorite fanny pack, let us know. And I think, let's dive into the interview, and then we'll catch up a little bit more on all this crap that we put in our bags afterward. Great. Hey, Tori, thanks for coming on the Bike Rumor Show. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to hear your story because, I, you know, there's so many things about bikepacking now it seems like it's just kind of blown up whether or not people actually do more of it nowadays or not i think just having those bags on the bike makes them look cool and apadura stuff is always to me visually stood out as some of the best looking stuff on the market so i'm really keen on hearing how this came about you are from canada or at least went to school in canada and then are now living in london what's the how did you get from point a to point b um, well, first of all, uh, thanks for the kind words about uh, our stuff. I appreciate um, uh, I appreciate that, and I hope that it's it lives up to uh, the impressions that it gives visually. Um, yeah, that's right. I'm from Canada, born and raised in Calgary, which is uh, Western Canada, just near the Rockies. Uh, spent 30 years there. Um, came into biking there, uh, and the path from there to London is not a, an especially straight line. Um, uh, I guess at some points I largely driven by, um, I, I, I guess personal growth that I had because of, uh, how, how cycling had impacted my life. Uh, I chose to, to move away and discover more of the world. Uh, I, I moved to Singapore for a period of time. I uh, lived in France, uh, and, uh, also New York. Um, before coming to to London, um, so it's been a bit of a a wiggly line, but it's taken me uh, lots of different places and given me an opportunity to see a few things. That's cool. What made you want to leave Calgary? Because it's, I mean, it's it's beautiful up there, and you've got so much amazing nature there. It's close to Banff. It's close to uh, what is it, Jasper? I think, but it's incredible yeah. up there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Calgary is a fantastic place to to live and to grow up uh i consider myself exceptionally fortunate to to have been raised there um i i guess uh why i chose to leave uh had a lot to do with um some of the things that some of the curiosity that was sparked in me through uh some of the traveling that i'd done uh with my bike um i i first started cycling actually uh as a means of transportation for work um, but that quickly spiraled into a, a fairly major hobby. Um, and I did uh, a fair bit of bike touring. Um, first in Canada, I'd uh, done West, uh, some trips in Western Canada uh, and then Northern Canada. Uh, and I guess every time I uh, took a step a bit further, I was more and more curious about other places and other people um, and other ways to do things. Uh, I do miss Calgary. Uh, I don't miss the long cold winter but um i i miss the people there uh and i miss being close to the mountains it's a, a really really special place 
Yeah, there's not a ton of mountains in London. Um. No, but it, it, <laughs> it definitely heightens your uh, appreciation for the outdoors. I think every time we leave the city, uh, it's it surprises us uh, anew every time. Um, and you, you don't take it for granted, that's for sure. Um, so we make the most of the time that we have outside of the city. Uh, and you find special ways to um, enjoy the outdoors, even within the city. There are some pretty good parks here and some surprising little getaways you can find. That's cool. So you, this kind of growing and growing and growing interest in cycling led obviously to starting Apadura because you were doing longer and longer rides. But before we get to the big one in Africa, I wanted to talk about, you know, like Canada. So, I mean, Canada, especially when you get up that north, once you get outside of the big cities, it's really could be pretty wild and out there and no cell service and everything else. Even, you know, and I don't know how long ago this was. It may have been before cell service. Um, was that, were you heading out alone on some of these longer rides or were you going with groups of people? Uh, yep, it was alone. Um, most of the touring that I did uh, early on was on my own. Um, sometimes it's fairly straightforward, like Vancouver Island is kind of a, a, a neat starting ground uh, where uh, amenities are close enough in between that you can't really go wrong. But northern Canada for sure is a different uh, ballgame. Um, so I, I rode from the Arctic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean uh, down the Dempster Highway, which is a fairly long and difficult uh, gravel road. Um, and yeah, it, it, the the type of preparation that requires is quite a bit different. In, in hindsight, I was like shamefully underprepared <laughs> for that. Um, I survived because I the weather turned out to be um on my side and fortunately nothing went wrong but uh in terms of my uh wilderness survival skills or even my ability to fix anything on my bike if anything had gone wrong uh i i i, I was very lucky <laughs> let's just say that but i i think it also really empowered me um because uh if, if you can when you start when you start to be able to go um far enough that you can draw it on a map um like a zoomed out map and see what sort of um distances you can cover uh you it opens up so many possibilities so i, I think that was kind of the trip that was the hook um to a lot of other uh rides that i ended up doing that's awesome and so this was well before apidura right Oh yeah, yeah. What were you uh, using? What kind of equipment were you using? Um, I had a road bike, which was a terrible idea. I think, <laughs> um, like skinny twenty-three mil tires um, on gravel roads that were like ball bearings. Uh, I, it was just—it's kind of embarrassing to to think about or talk about um, what kind of equipment I was using. This is pre-gravel bikes, pre-adventure bikes, pre-fat um, tires, but it was. A long enough distance and enough proper road that a uh, mountain bike would have also been a bad choice. Right. So, what year was um, this? Just was loaded... to put this into perspective for people. I think this was 2006, but it might have been 2007. Okay, yeah, that's pre-gravel, but not so long ago. Yeah, it, it, it's not ancient history, but um, uh, I was still using a BlackBerry at the time um, <laughs> to put it into some sort of time frame, and uh, there definitely was not great service. There was uh, I, I didn't have um, Google Maps on it, uh, for example. 
Um, although you don't really need it up there. You have one road and you're definitely not going to steer off it uh, if you were prepared as I was. Um, yeah, I, I had a rack and panniers um, filled uh, with far more stuff than I needed uh, and a fairly ill-equipped uh, titanium road bike. Right on. Okay, so what was it about that equipment and everything? I mean, besides overpacking, because we all always overpack. Um, where did the spark come from for the idea for Epidura? When did you say, you know, I think I can do better than this stuff? Um, the spark came uh, in 2011. That was really my first foray into Rackless. As you mentioned a moment ago, um, I did a, a fairly big ride from the top of Africa to the bottom of Africa. It was about four and a half months. Um, that was a supported tour, um, a lot of riding, but um, it was also one that uh, I guess made me want to get back to self-supported riding um, because it's a very different experience to be able to choose uh how long you go each day and how fast you go and um, what when you stop, where you stop and so forth. Uh, so after this ride, I was in pretty good shape um, by my standard and probably the best shape of my life um, and decided it was a good year to try um, the Tour Divide, which is, um, uh, if you're familiar, uh, an off-road race from uh, Banff, Alberta to the Mexican border. Uh, about 80% off-road, uh, is fairly, fairly intense and difficult route to say the least. Um, I think the vertical that you gain, um, over the 4,200 kilometers is about, is the equivalent of Everesting, uh, six times. Um, so it's, it's, it's a difficult ride and, and, and not one that you can do with a traditional touring setup. You, you definitely care how much everything weighs. You definitely want um, a slightly different setup than you might on a, a traditional road tour. Uh, and a friend of mine in Calgary introduced me to uh, Rackless. At that time, it was really a do-it-yourself and cottage sort of industry. There were guys making and selling gear, um, but it really wasn't something that was accessible um, to a lot of people. Uh, fortunately, uh, uh, through the Calgary community, um, I, I was connected with gear, um, had a chance to uh, cobble a few things together myself, uh, and it was incredible. The experience was absolutely incredible. It changed everything. I, suddenly, I could ride on single track. I could ride whatever bike I wanted. Uh, I could ride fast. Um, obviously, the the capacity that you can put on um, a a small frame for someone my height, uh, it does have limitations, um, when you take away a rack, uh, but at the same time, you can go a lot faster and farther. So you don't need to carry as much stuff. Um, and when you're racing, uh, well, it, you just don't have time for other things. Um, yeah. but I came back from that just wanting to do more. Uh, and the more I rode, I, I realized after that, I wanted to get back to riding with people. <laughs> um, but I didn't want to spend my time at a sewing machine. So, uh, that meant uh, trying to think about how how to get everyone uh, I was riding with um, equipped in the same way and how to maybe take something that was handmade or homemade to the next level and bring in some modern manufacturing techniques and uh, world-class materials and uh, really take it to 
basically the same level that uh, of, of quality and craftsmanship than that I had in my own bike. Yeah, and cause so you said it was like a cottage industry, meaning what? Like you would, you'd have to kind of find somebody who is handcrafting bags and ask them to make one for your particular frame and all that, or like what was the? Uh, there were a few. There were a few manufacturers around at the time. Um, some of them were, uh, yeah, just basically guys working out of their garage. Uh, doing custom orders. Um, Revelate was around at the time, uh, but it was a, a chron chronically out of stock. So uh, it was very difficult to get what you wanted. And if you wanted to get something specific, uh, it was almost impossible. Okay. So enter Epidura. And were you in London by this time? Uh, this time I was living in New York. Uh, and to be honest, the, it didn't really start with a, an ambition to start a business. Uh, it was really about trying to get the gear that we wanted uh, to ride with. Um, and the more work that we did trying to make um, the things that we wanted to ride with, uh, it, it basically uh, was a snowflake that turned into a blizzard. We went down a path of trying to do more things. And the more we saw was possible, the more we wanted to do and it was just this um spiral of work over the course of two years figuring out how to how to make things um how to make things better um thinking about design testing it trying it uh and of course during this time writing a lot uh we crossed europe um i did a trip through pakistan and china um testing gear uh is the best part of building a business like this um, and ultimately in 2013, uh, we moved to London and, uh, set the business up here, uh, launched or opened for trading in 2014, um, with just three products. Uh, it was fairly s simple lineup. Um, and I, I think we had a fairly dynamic and, uh, adaptive attitude toward how we would take the business. We didn't have a, a super planned out idea of um, what we would do at the time. It, it was because it very sincerely came from uh, building stuff that we were wanting to use ourselves. Um, we didn't have this ambition around uh, being um, a big global business, uh, even though we took a global approach to, to setting things up, not just in terms of um, our manufacturing, but in terms of what kind of market we wanted to reach. So were you thinking you were just going to make enough so that you and all your friends had good gear and then you just go off on adventures together? Uh, I think it, 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 it's a funny one because, uh, so when I, first of all, when I'm saying we, I'm talking about, uh, I mean, my husband, because my husband uh, started the business with me. Um, we had differing views on this. Uh, Pierre comes, doesn't come in with the same level of cycling experience. Uh, and I remember when we first, uh, produced gear, he had a lot of doubts about whether we would ever sell, um, all that we needed to make it, it, It's, um, it, it's a funny process, uh, to get into making something because you, you have to buy a certain amount of fabric and you need to, it, there's a certain volume of everything that you need to buy in order to make it work. And then there's a question of whether you, you can sell it. But my gut told me. Every, every tourist I've seen since I started using this gear has asked me, where can I get one of those? Um, and, and 
aside from that, like just the, the number of people I saw with panniers, even in the city commuting, um, uh, and using a, a conventional heavy ill-equipped setup, um, gave me the feeling that, uh, we, we would sell enough. Um, but it, it was it was more of a gut feel than something we could um, say with certainty when we started out. Uh, yeah. It just felt like it was possible. You said you started with three products. What were those first three? Uh, it was a saddle pack, a handlebar pack, and a little accessory pocket that attaches to the handlebar pack. And that was largely because uh, I I have a very small frame, so uh, th those were the highest capacity uh, products and therefore the most usable for me. Right. Where did the name Epidura come from? <clears throat> so it's a, it's a new word that we made. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a cross between two Latin words, uh, one apidae and, uh, which is Latin for bees, um, and durabilis, which is Latin for, uh, lasting. Um, we felt that bees were a good symbol for cyclists because they are light and they, travel fast and far, uh, and they're social and independent at the same time. Um, so it was a good uh, representation uh, for for cycling. Uh, also, when I first did club racing, I had a lot of anxiety about it. So one way I overcame that was to uh, dress like a bee uh, when I raced. <laughs> so I had a personal connection there. Um, and then Durablis, we wanted to make products that lasted uh, in the same way as we did on our, our long rides. That's cool. Well, that explains the logo. Now it all makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned kind of getting things rolling in New York. Were you in the city? Like, did you take advantage of the garment district there to help find materials and people who could make prototypes for you? Uh, when you mention it now, it seems like I probably should have. <laughs> uh, at that time, actually, I was trying to get manufacturing set up in Canada. Um, because I wasn't sure where, uh, the wind would take me after New York. I had a feeling I might end up back in Canada and, uh, it was, a an environment that I understood and thought, uh, would work pretty well. Um, so no, actually New York was helpful, uh, in the, I, I guess in building this simply because actually there's a lot of nice writing that you can do from Manhattan. Um, so it was a chance for us to see different styles of riding and do a fair bit of riding out, out of the city. So where is the product made now? We do assembly in Asia. Um, the, uh, I guess I'm going to rewind uh, a moment, uh, because the, to connect the dots between that, uh, and my, how I've just referenced, uh, trying to do production in Canada, uh, and then ultimately assembly in Asia. Um, that was a big part of uh, the two years that we spent uh, working things out before we ultimately established the business. Um, when we moved to France after New York, um, I also spent a fair bit of time trying to uh, look at manufacturing options within France. I thought I, I felt it was very important to be very close to production, even if we weren't doing it in-house ourselves. What I wanted um, was an ability to access world-class uh I guess, skills and equipment and fabrication technology, um, but also have the ability to um, spend my own time working on design and testing and uh, like the more business side of things. So we, we spend a fair bit of time evaluating different opportunities within Europe. Uh, ultimately, we went to Asia because 
that's where the skills are and that's where the best materials are. Um, Pierre's sister actually has a business making uh, women's clothing that's uh, based in China. Um, well, her business is based in France, but uh, she manufactures in China. Uh, so I think that was a, um, a big help in terms of getting comfort about doing business uh, in a place that felt far away, but actually uh, turned out to solve a lot of the issues that we'd been having for a couple of years as we were trying to figure out how to make things to the standard that we we felt was necessary for this product. Um, so we, we source materials from around the world. Uh, we have materials that come from the US, we have materials that come from Korea, Taiwan, Vietnam, uh, and we do assembly in China. Cool. So in my head, the, the big question is you've, you're riding all around the world. You're building bags and testing and all this stuff. Were you also working? Like, did you have a job and able to do all of this? Or was Pierre bringing home the bacon so you could kind of, I don't want to say play, <laughs> but, you know, just sort of see where this would take you? Well, I guess there, there's two answers to that. Uh, one, uh, I, I, we, we started the business, um, I guess, at a later age than some of, some entrepreneurs do. So I had some savings, um, which helped a bit. Uh, and yes, Pierre, uh, kept his day job, um, actually until two years ago, uh, so that we could make sure we could make it all work. Uh, and, uh, now the business has, uh, legs and he was able to join full-time, uh, just over two years ago. Awesome. What were you doing? What yeah. was your job before? What did you do for work before Epidura? Oh, that's a little bit different. Uh, <laughs> like so anything cool? Was... <laughs> Pardon anything me? cool? It depends on your perspective. <laughs> uh, uh, working in Calgary, uh, I guess unsurprisingly, um, I worked uh, in the oil and gas sector. Uh, so I studied economics and public policy. Uh, worked in um, a startup uh, finance company that actually worked with startup oil and gas companies. Um, so I think it was very cool. Um, but I also have uh, after about eight years, eight, nine years, um, felt that I had done it, uh, done a sufficient amount of it, uh, to explore some other interests, let's say. Um, I've also done a bit of work, uh, I, I guess on the public policy side. Um, for me, it's a bit more interesting because I've done less of it and, uh, it's an exploration of some other interests. So I've done some work in Kazakhstan and Tunisia on, uh, uh, public, publicly funded, venture capital. Hmm, cool. Well, I, I wonder then, did that kind of give you an idea on how businesses were financed so that you could help structure Epidura? Because it's one thing to have a cool product idea and figure out how to make a product. It's a whole other thing to figure out how to actually run a business and make it successful. Does that, did that help? Definitely. Um, for better or worse, um, I, I mean, there's uh, benefits and drawbacks to just about every decision you can make when you start a business. Uh, but for us, uh, it was very clear that we would try to do this with our own, uh, to fund it ourselves, um, as long as we could. Uh, and so far that's worked. Um, a, a big reason for that, uh, is that we, we felt that, uh, when you bring in other people, uh, it's, you're not always aligned. Uh, and sometimes that means you you have to make compromises in terms of how you make business decisions and um, the direction that the business uh, will go. 
Um, so I, I think we've been very fortunate that way. It's, it's also meant that we've been, uh, had to be very creative, I guess, along the way. Um, at the start, you know, before you uh, are making enough money to take a salary, um, or before you're uh, you have enough money to uh, hire someone, you have to do. You're basically working seven days a week, uh, 24 hours a day. Um, Pierre was working evenings and weekends and holidays, and um, like while he was sleeping, <laughs> uh, just to help balance things out uh, with me. Um, we, we did photo shoots in our kitchen. We, we fulfilled orders from our living room. Uh, we really had to stretch and, uh, extend ourselves, uh, through the first years in order to make it possible to keep it internally funded. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I had a beverage company before I started bike room room, same thing, except that we did take on outside investment and, you know, it was all friends and family stuff, but then you become beholden to those people as much to your customers and it's this struggle of like well who do i please and that's what with bike rumor i didn't ever want to have to do that not that you really need a ton of capital to start a blog but you know it's grown big but we've managed to keep it all self-funded and a small but really passionate team and it's it's great because you just retain complete control over where you want to take that company what kind of product you know whether it's a digital thing like ours or a physical one like yours you know you get to do what you want to do and it's, you can still call it a lifestyle business, but you know, you can still make it big and fun. Definitely. Definitely. That's our uh, philosophy. And so far uh, we've, we've been lucky enough to, to keep it that That's way. That's awesome. So I want to talk about the actual products and the trends, you know, so you, I, what, like five, six years now, you've actually had product on the market. Yep. Okay. What have you seen change in that time? Like what were some of the things you started with that, you figured out you needed to evolve or where do you see trends going in the, you know, the bike packing and rackless touring stuff? Um, that's a good question. I, yeah. I, I, there's been an enormous amount of change in the last five years. Uh, uh, seven, if you count the time that we were sort of in development before, uh, we, we were first in the market. Um, yeah, at the start, I mean, the, the landscape was totally different. Um, it, we were largely, what was available was basically things people could make in their home. Um, if I, if I put it simply, which, which was pretty limiting in terms of, uh, what kind of, um, materials you can use and what sort of fabrication you have access to. Uh, I think that the rise of interest in bike packing has been fueled by, I guess the proliferation of ultra racing events, um, the availability of things like gravel bikes and adventure bikes, which really make it a much more accessible sport. Um, and that's also invited a lot of interest from competitors. So now it's not just, um, backshed, uh, homemade guys. It's also big players like Specialized and Topi coming in and, um, having their game, uh, having a, their hand at a, a, a game, uh, at the game. <laughs> um, but it's a so so it's a funny landscape. It's 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 dynamic. Um, it's it, things have changed um, a fair bit in terms of who's there, but also what kind of products we have um, ourselves. We started out with, uh, as I mentioned, three SKUs. Um, they they were stitched products, um, and uh, I guess by late uh, Eurobike twenty fifteen. Um, we were able to introduce the first fully waterproof, 
uh, rackless carry system. So we had uh, seam welded products uh, on display at Eurobike in 2015. We were the first ones out there to do that. Um, I think that was a significant uh, step forward in terms of the products that you see. Um, now Raf has entered the game as well, by the way. Oh, wow. um, uh, w where do I see it going? I think the, the fact that there's a lot of uh, competitors in the landscape right now is actually pretty exciting. Um, personally, as a user, I think choice is always good. Um, uh, it means that everyone can uh, have their uh, specific needs satisfied. Um, as a business owner, it obviously means a lot of challenge because you need to somehow stay ahead. We have a lot of people copying what we do, which is a bit annoying. Um, but part of who we are and part of why we exist is to make things better. Uh, so it just means it keeps you on your toes and forces you to uh, keep innovating and keep pushing forward and making things better. Um, so that means revisiting the products that we make and how, how can we make them better? How can we, um, manufacture them in a, a cleaner way or how can we learn from the customer feedback, um, how, or our own, uh, writing experience. Um, there's, I, I think there's still a lot of room for improving the products that we make. And I think that there's, uh, there are new avenues that are, unexplored let's say without giving too much away i think that there there will be a lot of development in the the sector over the next couple of years you you may not see it from everyone across the board um because i i think it's is difficult for small com uh, very small companies and for very large companies to really innovate on the very small side you if, if you're too local in your mindset um, or too uh, local in your uh, in terms of what you're willing to do, uh, it really limits what you what you can do. Um, it limits uh, the materials you can use. It limits the skills you can access. It limits the manufacturing uh, techniques that you can use. And if you're too big, uh, you're always going to be a year or two behind. Um, you're probably going to be price driven, so you're not going to invest in products the same way. Uh, and you're always going to be playing the catch-up game. So I think uh, most of the, uh, well, <laughs> it's a bit self-centered, but I, uh, I think most of the uh, exciting development in the area is going to come from guys like us. Uh, that's what we're focused on, and that's what we are positioned to do because we are global in our mindset, um, but we're also small and nimble, and we do the sport ourselves, so we're very connected to it. That's cool. So speaking of global mindset, do you find needs varying from region to region around the world and you know there's like somebody in asia wants something different from europe and something different from north america sure uh <laughs> to some extent that's true i i think there uh if you decide to cut up the market geographically you can decide on differences uh regionally uh and sometimes we do um but i think you can cut up the market uh even within london in the same way if you choose to do that um we so so we don't spend a lot of time doing that uh i think we pay attention to the feedback that we get from different types of users uh whether they're customers or ambassadors or or, or friends and family uh scattered around the world uh and we uh, we look at them less uh, through the lens of geography uh and more through the lens of just a cyclist um, just and understanding uh, how they're using their bike. 
Pardon? Yeah, exactly. Different use cases. Yeah. I have a guess, but I, I want to, I'll tell you after you tell me, because I want to know what is the most challenging, hardest pack that goes on a bike to design? <laughs> uh, well, the hardest of the, the hardest nut to crack at the start was definitely the saddle pack. Um, because the, there's a lot of structure that's required in order to make it uh, fit well and perform well. Uh, you need something that doesn't swing, that uh, doesn't interfere with your legs when you're you're pedaling. Um, so I, I guess if you'd asked me this a few years ago, uh, that would have been the easy question. Um, now I think uh, the handlebar pack is something that we're very focused on uh, uh, finding new ways forward. Uh, with uh, simply because there's different handlebar setups. Um, it's much more varied than a saddle. Um, uh, if you have cross levers or you're, depending on where you're, how narrow your drop bars are, it can have a significant impact. Or if you have arrow bars, um, we've tried a few new things um, that uh, I think are trying to break new ground here. Uh, about six months ago, we launched a handlebar pack that fits under the arrow bars. It's basically the first product um, uh, in the space available for that's specifically designed for aero bars and it's got uh, uh, spots for um, water bottles um, or it can be converted to, into a single large compartment um, but it's part of our overall effort to find different ways to better address the handlebar mm -hmm. question that seems like something robbing which would love all right uh, yeah yeah it was uh, <laughs> The uh, yes, yeah, so saddlebags was going to be my guess because it does. It seems like they they jut out so far behind without any hard structural element to keep them from swaying around. And I've you know I've struggled trying to get them packed well, tight enough, and not just basically falling all over the place when I'm riding. I don't even you know do like a lot of serious bike packing. I just like stuffing stuff in there sometimes. Um, well, I think one of the keys is just uh, it's it's like with any any time that you're carrying something, um, balancing the load is really important. Um, I think people run into problems sometimes if they try to put everything in one single pack. Uh, it, it's a common uh, first timer. I'm not calling you a first timer, but a, a common first timer's error uh, to take the biggest pack, thinking that you can. Uh, then do just about anything you want with a single pack. Uh, but it would be like saying, I'm going to get, uh, I'm going to take a pair of pants with just one pocket. Uh, it's not going to be very nice if you have to put your keys and your wallet and your phone in one pocket. Uh, so going sometimes with some smaller spaces that are a bit more modular and a bit more balanced uh, can lead to a nicer experience. Cool. How much of the design, the product design you guys do is dictated by frames and the way bikes are changing i mean you're still for the most part with a bike packing i imagine working with a standard double triangle but do you have to constantly evolve your stuff to fit bikes as they change or can you kind of just sort of keep doing what you're doing <laughs> it's it, it's a consideration um frankly the the bigger challenge is less with frame geometry is changing because actually the the triangle the triangle doesn't change that much but the frame materials are quite a bit different. So working with a, a carbon frame or trying to adapt something for a carbon frame, uh, if you think about the the head tube and how wide that can be relative to like a steel bike, um, the variation's quite large. So that's not changing because 
uh, of how bikes are changing. It's simply um, what the bikes are made from that sometimes presents the biggest challenges to, to tailor something specific to a frame. Hmm. What about dealing with the finishes on those frames? Because, you know, you obviously don't want to wear through a carbon, and if something's rubbing and rubbing and rubbing over, you know, thousands of miles, it could eventually wear through some of the carbon, I think. Uh, but where, you know, metal, you don't really have that much of an issue. Is that, like, do you have to that's, offer different materials for different frames? That's kind of true, then? although if you have a brushed titanium bike, uh, you'll probably disagree <laughs> um, that you, you can still get wear marks. Um, uh, so uh, it's something that we take seriously. Um, and, and actually, we we um, invest in uh, attachments that reduce the amount of friction um, uh, on the contact areas with frames um, to, to, I guess, accommodate the fact that friction happens. Um, there's If you're having contact with a bike, it doesn't matter what you put there. There's some friction that's going to happen. Um, I guess there's different perspectives on this. I think we, we we are mindful of it and do what we can from a fabrication standpoint to minimize uh, that. At the same time, I think from a user perspective, uh, if you want your bike to never have a scratch on it, um, you're probably not going to enjoy bike packing. At, at some point, it's, um, it's almost like a, a badge of honor uh, that you can, can look at something and say, I've used this. Um, I like, I got that scratch when I was on this tour and I have a special memory associated with, uh, um, this rub mark. So for somebody who's just getting into this, let's say they're not going on a, you know, big multi-day epic. They just want to do kind of like maybe one all day ride from point A to point B and then their friends are going to pick them up at the other end. What's, what's a good starting point? What are the minimum essentials somebody could use for a literally an all day, one day ride? I think the, the most important question to ask is just what level of comfort, um, you think you need and getting the, the packing list right before you get into, uh, the actual packs that are needed. Um, but personally, I think for, for, for something simple like this, uh, a simple saddle pack and a top two pack, uh, would cover just about anyone. Um, you can get a fair bit of clothing in a saddle pack, uh, and just about anything you need, uh, through the day you can do with a, a top two pack. Um, frame packs are pretty nice as well. It's slightly more complicated because you, you need to consider your frame fit. Um, but it's nice cause you can access stuff on the go. So it depends on whether you like to stop, uh, with, like if you're going to stop and have a break, um, whether you stop and get off your bike or whether you just post and that's how you afford yourself a stop. Cool. So what is your bike set up? If you're going on a multi-day, do you have like every pack imaginable stuck to your frame or how have you figured it out? I have a, a small, the smallest size of saddle pack and a full frame pack and a top two pack. Um, I love my full frame pack. Uh, it's fantastic. And that's everything. That's sleeping, clothes, food. Yep. Okay. Everything except for my computer. That's something we haven't quite <laughs> dialed, but uh, we will at some point. You just bring your Blackberry, right? <laughs> I've moved on from then. <laughs> is there anything about frame bags and bikepacking in general that you think is a big misconception or an unknown that you would want to share as kind of a closing remark? Um, just, I, I think for anyone who's curious about it, but thinks that it's, uh, it's too complicated or they don't know where to start. Uh, it's easier than you think. And, then, uh, it, um, there's a lot of great, uh, material or information out on the internet um 
uh, including our website, uh, to, to, to figure out how to plan a route or how to pack or how to sleep in the wild if you want to sleep in the wild. Um, but uh, the most important thing is just to get out uh, and, and try it once. Uh, take a friend or follow a friend who, who's done it before. Um, it's a really, really neat experience, uh, and you'll be begging for more. That's cool. So do you have like uh, pack checklists on your website or just kind of general how-to guides? Um, at the moment, we have general how-to guides. How to guides. Uh, we more most recently actually published a repair guide. Um, so it's got some tips on how to repair things on your bike, how to repair things on your body, uh, how to repair things for other gear like uh, – uh, tents or clothing uh, when things go wrong to try to help break down the barriers or, or excuses people have for why they don't get out. So awesome, Tori. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot for your time, Tyler. So what did you think of that? <laughs> Go to. I, I thought it was great. It was very interesting. It was. It's. I love, I, I mean, I've probably said this many times, but like I just love when somebody has an idea and they just go for it, right? Like, what was the downside to her making a couple of bags and then just, you know, doing it? Even if she just made them for personal use and then the friends saw them, they liked them, so she made a couple more. And then all of a sudden, it's like, hey, you know, like, I think there's something here. And now they're, you know, in my mind, again, like one of the premier frame bag companies out there. They certainly have a good brand cachet and the stuff seems super well made. And what's cool is, you know, so... Tori sent me a bunch of notes, kind of like bullet point notes, talking points, just so that I had a little bit of background on her and her company. And one of the things that stood out in that, which we didn't really talk about in the interview, was they don't do seasons and they don't do discounting and promotional pricing, right? Like they make something and it's there, it's in the line. And if they find a way to make it better, they make it better. It's not like this is our 2019 bag in, in fuchsia with purple zippers, it's we make this and it's one color and it's awesome and you know if we can find a way to make it better cool next year it's going to be better absolutely yeah i'm a fan of that um i'm sure that there are times where they have a bag that's hanging out for too long and they're like we want this bag out and potentially sell it at sale price yeah maybe but that's not a it's not a like we got to get rid of, of this behavior. color because the like, new colors exactly, are coming in yeah, yeah. Which is yeah, good. I think that that's definitely something, you know, from an entrepreneur and a business standpoint, that's something that helps maintain brand value. And I've even seen some bike companies coming into that, right? Like they don't have model years anymore. It's like this is the new XYZ model. It replaces XYB model. For sure. And it's been two and years yeah. or, yeah, it just came Whatever out at a random time. I mean, they were pretty strategic with coming out near a trade show or an event. They can highlight it, but... Sometimes. They used to be. And that's, you know, this is kind of like total tangent. But, you know, when we started Bike Rumor, Bike Rumor turns 11 in just a couple months, which is crazy to me. But when we started, it was pretty, you could almost set your watch by like, okay, you'd have launches at Sea Otter, launches at Interbike, and then a couple of things in the summer. And then all of a sudden, somebody decided, some of the big brands like Specialized and Trek started doing their own things. And then, so they were no longer doing their launches at the shows. And then all of a sudden it was like, but you could still count on that window between early April and September. That's where all the launches were going to be. And then you had the winter to kind of catch up on everything. Now it's just a year round cycle of launches. Nobody, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just like when we have something new, we're going to launch it. Or, hey, I think this is going to be a dead time of year. If we launch now, we'd get a lot of attention without a lot of distraction. So yeah, it's kind of crazy, but... 
um, that's has nothing to do with bike packing. Nothing bags. to do. So when was the last time you um, went bike packing? Uh, well, <laughs> this is a funny story. So I got some bags in from another brand with the intention to go, and I had the guys at the feet, you know, Rob and Shane, and all of them. We were all going to go, and then it ended up the weather just went sideways, and it was going to be like twenty degrees. Crazy windy, miserable, and we're like, yeah, let's postpone, and then we never did happen again. This was a couple years ago, so it's on my list of things I want to do. So what's cool is uh, my friend Steve and I are going to Slovenia to go bikepacking around some old World War One Jeep roads later this year. We're going to do a killer story on it on Bike Rumor, but so that's going to be my first full-on like bikepacking trip. It's kind of like credit card bikepacking so we'll stay in hotels so we don't need to pack like tents and sleeping bags sure. but we're going to be on the bike literally from the time we get up to the time we crash at night so we'll have to bring food and then of course for us doing what we do we have to document it so we'll have cameras and you know our phones and like all kinds of electronics adding into the mix so we're definitely going to have some killer bags on the bike to do that but um how about you it's been a very long time and of course that Irony is that I push that as with my shop very much, but lately I'm just there all the damn time, yeah. so I don't get to get out and do the things I talk about. And then before I was focusing on other kind of events, like one day very long events that just didn't need it. I travel in my van. Yeah, I need to. I need to get out there. I'm yeah. like, and listening to this podcast actually made me just. I wanted to stop listening to the interview and just disappear. Just, go. just disappear. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be cool. So, on a normal ride, what are you carrying with you? We'd start in like a mountain bike ride. Yeah, mountain ride. bike ride, gravel ride, road ride, whatever. I'm super minimalist about this stuff. Um, I, <laughs> I carry a tool, a tube, tire lever maybe, CO2, inflation, whatever, um, ID. Are you stuffing it in your jersey? or? Yeah, I used to be really opposed to any kind of bags on the bike. So I was that guy with a ton of stuff in my jersey. Although I wasn't, you know, overstuffing my jersey pockets. But, yeah, I tried not to. I wanted this streamlined look. Um, and now, as I mentioned, we're putting handlebar bags on. Mm-hmm. And then... But you're not. I, I do. You've yeah. got... Do you really? I do. Well, you, but, um, I know you've got the little, like, backcountry strap thing. Yeah, but I'm big on those. I can't stand it. Not, nothing is backcountry straps, brands in particular, like any straps. Like, I like the straps. I've tried them. I they're just, tight I and like it keeps stuff tight. Yeah, I've uh, had bags, so many I have failures stuff just, with I've never had straps. a failure. I've oh, they start, a things come loose, they dangle. On like, a backcountry strap? I don't know. Okay, see, now I've never had an issue with my backcountry straps. Yeah. Um, well, maybe I, I, I probably did it wrong. There was definitely some user error <laughs> potential in there. I don't know. But the, the point is, it's like, all the stuff is loose. I was like, why would you not just put a saddlebag on? Probably weighs the same. Everything's nice and tight and compact and contained. Completely closed in from the elements. It just makes so much sense to me. Yeah, potentially. They wiggle around. Um, <laughs> I was just laughing because I remembered this time I put a banana in, in a bag. and <laughs> <laughs> went on a rod. A mountain bike ride. Hold on, what and kind of bag? It was just like a, I a know larger, you don't wear a hydration bag. A larger saddle bag. And this is early on when I started <laughs> started riding. And um went to uh go eat the banana and was like, I swear there's a banana in here. And it disintegrated. It was just oh. not even there was no peel even. It was just <laughs> splattered uh, everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so you had banana gel. 
Mm-hmm. I was a pioneer. You said the pioneer. Hmm. Um. Yeah, I mean, where do we go from there? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, we need to get out more. Is the point? Everyone does. All right, Watts. I don't know how we're gonna top squish banana in your bag. So I think. The next obvious thing we should talk about is the fact that nobody has guessed who our voiceover is for the intro and outro on this podcast yet. This is true. All right. So I think that the thing that would give it away is if we told everybody who she does commentary for. She does World Cup downhill commentary and other race commentary for a certain entity. But the funny thing is she does it. She does German language commentary even though she's Swiss. So we're going to leave that as the hint for this time. If you can guess who it is, leave your guess in the comments on the post for this episode, and the winner will get some Bike Rumor swag. We'll ship it anywhere in the world. We'll give you uh, a CD of the hot track at the beginning. And, and maybe a Revolution <laughs> Cycles t-shirt. What do you think? Should we throw one of those in? Like, sweeten yeah, the pot a little. Get people not? motivated. Yeah, because okay. those t-shirts are gold. Yeah, Let so you'll you. get a Revolting Cogs t-shirt. Well, no, a Revolution Cycles t-shirt because I don't have any Come Revolting on. Cogs t-shirts. Oh, uh, you don't? <laughs> I don't have any. It's time to order more. All right. By the sure. way, check out Revolting Cogs. What's your website? Because people love that oh, shirt. I don't have a uh, Revolting Cogs website so much. I have a, a blog that I barely post to anymore. Right but if people wanted a Revolting Cogs t-shirt, because they are pretty cool. It's cute and cuddly animals and stuff on them. That's a Revolution Cycles t-shirt. Is it? Damn it, I don't know what I'm talking about. No. All right. Well, anyway, you get one of those. That's the shirt I was hoping for. You get one of those awesome t-shirts plus bike rumor swag if you can guess this person. So leave your guess in the comments. And if nobody gets it, we'll give you more hints next time. Stay tuned. Make sure you hit like and subscribe on Apple, iTunes, podcasts, whatever they're calling it these days, Stitcher, Google Play. Anywhere you listen to podcasts, you're going to find this. Hit like and subscribe. And yeah, thanks for listening. Thank you. That's a wrap on this episode. Tune in next time for another great ride. Be sure to follow at Bike Rumor on your favorite social media and hit like and subscribe or leave a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks, and we will see you next time. <laughs>